you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We're going to be in verse 11, and we're going to work our way through verse 21 today. And as we talked about last week, their conversation serves the purpose of answering one simple question. How are we saved? How are we redeemed? How are we made holy again in the presence, sanctified in the presence of a holy God. And now last week, as we started to sort of unravel this, we quickly found that one simple question about our salvation can lead to more complicated questions about our salvation. Is it a result of God's sovereignty or human responsibility? Or do these two things work together? Does God make a decision about us or do we make a decision about God? And if you weren't with us last Sunday, I highly recommend going back and listening to the sermon podcasts. We upload them to our website every week. They're also on Apple and Google Podcasts. Um, they're shared on the Facebook page, usually Monday or Tuesday of each week. So, um, But basically, to recap last week's message in just a few words, Jesus' thesis statement to Nicodemus was, you must be born again. He told Nicodemus, you must experience rebirth. You must do something in yourself that you're incapable of doing on your own. You must participate in a miracle of God through the work of Jesus Christ. You can't work your way to heaven. You can only make it by the grace of God. And this particular teaching was astonishing to Nicodemus. It, it rattled him. It rocked him to his core. Because everything he had ever known had been off the mark. He had committed his entire life to cleaning up his outside to following God's commands, to holding God's rules, to keeping God's rituals, to observing God's ceremonies. He was all about checking the boxes and maintaining the public appearances. He was certain God wanted radical conformity from him on the outside, but he missed God's promise of radical transformation on the inside. So on the outside, Nicodemus was the, the poster boy of morality and good works, but on the inside, he was dying. On the inside, he was fearful, he was lost, he was broken. And so the last thing we hear from him is in verse 9, he asks Jesus, after Jesus gives him this message, he just says, how can these things be? How can these things be? How can everything I've ever known be wrong? You know, and truthfully, we can't provide a great answer for him. We can't fully flesh out the divine miracle of regeneration. But we know God's responsible for it. We know God cleanses us of our sins and revives us through the Holy Spirit, but we can't really speak in exact terms of how all that works. We just know God is responsible for our rebirth and that we are responsible for our belief. So in salvation, God plays a role and we play a role. God is sovereign and we are accountable. And so today we're going to discuss our part in salvation. And again, if we were to summarize verses 11 through 21 in one statement, it would be, we must believe. Last week, we must be reborn. That's a miracle of God. This week, we must believe. That is something in us. That puts the responsibility back on us. So let's start reading in verse 11. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, so Jesus and Nicodemus are wrapping up their conversation. Jesus has 
is bearing witness about himself, but Nicodemus does not receive his testimony. He couldn't accept it because he was still stuck in rebellion. See, our default setting is rebellion. When we are born, we are born with a sinful nature. If you have ever had small children in your house, you know this to be true. Okay? You know this to be true. We, we never taught Chandler to say no in a defiant tone, but yet she does it at two years old. We never taught Parker to lie, but yet we've caught her spreading false witness. We never taught our children to solve their problems with violence, but yet when a dispute happens over a toy, sometimes our living room turns into WrestleMania. If you've ever raised small children, you know this to be true. Trip is still perfect, but his day's coming. He's only six months old. So we're enjoying it while we can. But we know this to be true. Scripture says this is true. In Psalm 51, David wrote these words after he was confronted with his sins with Bathsheba. He wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Rebellion is in our DNA. It comes to us inherently. And it's been part of our story since the beginning. You know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve severed their initial connection with God by breaking His one rule. God gave them full dominion of the earth with one prohibition. Don't eat from that tree. You have dominion over everything else, but don't eat from that one tree. If you do, you'll die. And of course, they ignored the warning and they ate from the tree. And because of their choice, we inherited the curse of sin. Because of their choice, we were born into rebellion. Because of their choice, we were born into death. And so Nicodemus, like everyone else who has ever walked the earth, was a product of their choice. He was a contributing member to a sinful generation. He was a child of wrath. He was born blind to the gospel. And so this is why Jesus speaks so bluntly to him in verses 11 through 13. In verse 11 he says, We speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And so Jesus is using the editorial we there. He'll occasionally use a a, a plural pronoun when he's talking on behalf of himself and someone else. In this case, he's talking on behalf of himself and his father. See, when I stand before the congregation, I say, we're excited about our community fall festival on October 26th. Understand that I haven't gone around and taken a straw poll during the Sunday school hour. Right? I just, I, I say, we're excited. I'm not going around saying, okay, so what do we think? Fall festival, thumbs up, thumbs down. How are we feeling? Everybody good? Everybody excited? Like, no, I just, I just say, we. I'm speaking on behalf of myself. And as a leader in the church, I'm speaking on behalf of the church also. This is what Jesus is doing here. It says, we speak of what we know. We speak of what we personally know, and I'm telling you what I've personally experienced. I'm not providing you with second-hand information. He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm not, a, I'm not a preacher or a prophet or an apostle who's providing you recycled information about God. I am God. I'm telling you what I have eternally known. I'm telling you what I have eternally seen firsthand. I'm bringing you undisputed eternal truth directly from heaven. He goes on to say in verse 13 that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is offering Nicodemus a new perspective that the world has never seen. He is giving him a road map to heaven. 
He's giving him directions back to his house. See, this is where Jesus is different from every other religious leader in world history. Because every other religion originated on earth. Every other religion was imagined, created, and founded by human minds. But one religion came directly from heaven. One religion saw the Son of Man descend from heaven with a message. To call the nations to repentance. To call the nations to faith through Him. He preached that salvation was a free gift of God. A a miracle of God. An extension of His great compassion and mercy towards us. And Jesus was just proclaiming what he knew and what he experienced. But Nicodemus did not believe his testimony. And he was not alone. The end of verse 11 says, but you do not receive our testimony. And again, Jesus is using a plural pronoun there. The you in the original language there is plural. If there was a South Georgia version of the Bible, the SGV translation would read, but y'all don't receive my testimony but y'all don't receive my testimony. He's speaking directly to Nicodemus. They're engaged in conversation, but he's also speaking indirectly to the Pharisees, the religious leader, the nation of Israel, the Roman Empire, and the rest of the world. John foretold this in John 1, 10 and 11. He said, Jesus was in the world, yet the world did not receive him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So since Nicodemus refused to believe him, Jesus asked him a a harsh question in verse 12. In verse 12, he asked them this harsh rhetorical question. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus would have surely been surprised the way Jesus talks down to him in this moment. Remember, Nicodemus from last week, remember, he's a big shot. Remember, Nicodemus has everyone wants to sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say. For his entire career, he's been showered with with compliments and accolades. Everyone respected his leadership. Everyone celebrated his knowledge. Everyone marveled at his teaching. They elevated him to be the primary teacher in Israel. They promoted him all the way to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. They they built him up, but Jesus is, is tearing him down. Jesus is saying, look, if you can't wrap your mind around earthly things, I can't go any further with you. I used a simple earthly analogy. I gave you a simple earthly illustration about birth to explain salvation. But you don't get it. You don't buy it. You don't accept it. So I'm ending our conversation. I refuse to have deeper theological discussions with you. If you can't understand earthly things, then you won't be able to dig deeper into profound theology. You won't be able to understand God's purposes and salvation. I don't see any purpose in continuing our conversation. So we don't know exactly where Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus stops. Because he keeps keeps talking. At some point, he stops talking to Nicodemus and he starts teaching his disciples. And we aren't exactly sure where that change occurs, but if I were a betting man, I'd say verse 12 is probably a good guess. I would estimate that rhetorical question in verse 12 was probably the final straw for Nicodemus. But either way, their conversation ends, and Nicodemus is still in his default setting. He's still in rebellion. He's still a child of wrath. God spoke candidly and openly to him about his separation from God, and he couldn't handle it. He couldn't believe it. 
Jesus gave the bad news to Nicodemus and he walked away disappointed, discouraged, and confused. He walked away full of fear, worry, and doubt. But I want you to see God wasn't finished with him. We, we don't get the full story here. The Holy Spirit had just begun working in him. He was still in the dark in chapter 3, but when we see him again in chapter 7 and again in chapter 19, he's starting to walk into the light. And we know from history that Nicodemus would be crucified one day for his faith in Jesus. So God wasn't done with him, but we need to see the purpose in Jesus starting with the bad news with Nicodemus. We need to see that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. Because we don't love talking about sin and, and judgment and death and eternal torment. I know if I chase those tropes for too long, I become a stereotype, right? I become that Baptist preacher that's banging his fists and talking about hellfire. We don't like spinning that wheel. But understand, church, if we don't grapple with the bad news we can't fully appreciate the good news. If we don't understand the bad news, we can't fully understand the good news. Francis Schaeffer was one of the greatest apologists and, and, and evangelists in the 20th century American church, and they once asked him, Francis, if you were on a train with a modern man, if you were on a train with a man who didn't believe in God, and you had one hour to share the gospel with him, how would you go about doing it? And he said, I've said over and over again, I would spend 50 minutes on the negative. I would really show him his dilemma. I would really work to show him that he is morally dead. I would work to show him that he is in trouble. And then I take the last 10 minutes to preach the gospel. Because I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we're too anxious to get to the answer without allowing man to realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt in the presence of God. So it may seem like Jesus spoke harshly to Nicodemus, that he was a little negative to Nicodemus, a little mean to Nicodemus, but understand, before Nicodemus could believe the good news, he needed to understand the bad news. Before we can reconcile with God, we need to understand our sinfulness and brokenness that separates us from before we can experience salvation, we need to understand that our good works, our, our learning, our church attendance, our religious ritual are insufficient to save us. We need to understand this universal truth about humanity that our default setting is rebellion. So that's the good news. That's the bad news. Let's get to the good news. Sorry. So let's go back to verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. So our default setting is rebellion, and our only hope is God's grace. In these verses, Jesus provides a comprehensive explanation of the gospel. He unravels the gospel by pointing to four characteristics of his Father. His Father is the God who loves. His Father is the God who sacrifices. His Father is the God who sins. His Father is the God who saves. So first in John 3.16, we see God loves. 
for God so loved the world. Before leading his team onto the field against the Oklahoma Sooners in the 2009 National Championship game, Tim Tebow, who for the entire season had been writing Philippians 4.13 on his eye black, decided to make a change on the national stage. And for that game, he wrote John 3.16. And Tebow is known for many things. Today, he's mostly known as a below-average minor league outfielder. But he's also known as a Christ follower, a Heisman Trophy winner, a two-time national champion, a just absolute terror to the University of Georgia, a first-round draft pick, a best-selling author, and a leader of a life-changing nonprofit foundation. He's known for many things. He's accomplished many things in his 32 years. But his defining moments may still have been that night in Glendale, Arizona, January 8, 2009. Because after Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 on his eye black, 94 million people Googled it. Every media outlet ran a story on it. Every social media site was buzzing about it. Every conversation that week seemed to mention it. Some were encountering John 3.16 for the first time. Others were encountering John 3.16 for the 500th time. But for a few days, the national conversation was John 3.16. And for his part, Tebow was shocked at how many people had to Google John 3.16. He's even quoted as saying, how do they not know John 3.16? That's Sunday School 101, bro. That's actually the quote he said, bro. For many of us, John 3.16 is extremely familiar. We know it like the back of a hand. It's, it's second nature for us. And because we're so accustomed to John 3.16, we, we often struggle to see the radical nature of God's love for us in it. We kind of downplay it. We, we normalize it. We overlook it. We look past it. But it's radical. So we need to be reminded about two truths about God's love in John 3.16. First, God's love is universal. God so loved the world. It may sound elementary, but the world means the world. When God says everyone, he means everyone. That means from the missionary to the, in the Middle East to the inmate on death row, from the church leader to the corrupt politician, from the devout Sunday school teacher to the devout atheist, everyone means everyone. When God said he loves everyone, he means everyone. When God said he opens his gospel to everyone, he means everyone. Now, we obviously know this is true, but sometimes we don't live like it's true. Sometimes we say or think things like, well, she's just too far from God. He'll, he'll never change. I'm not going to waste my breath on them. Or I've prayed for him for 12 years. I've shared the gospel with her a hundred times. I keep inviting them to church, but I'm, I'm tired of the disappointment. I give up. Listen, any person currently apart from God is one conversation from salvation. Is one gospel account from salvation. You'll remember the Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And he may have been right about that. He hated Jesus. He hated the church. He actively worked every day to disrupt and destroy the early church. But he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and he made a 180 turn. So we can't be overly selective in who we extend invitations to for church. We can't be overly selective in who we share the gospel with. We should look everywhere for opportunities to turn everyday conversations into gospel conversations. 
Because God's love is universal, we cast a wide net. Second, God's love is demonstrated. His love is verified by his actions. His actions back up his words. I was reading a commentator this week who said that his family was talking one day at the dinner table and his his wife asked their two boys, how do you know daddy loves you? And they didn't say because he said so. They didn't say because he, he tells us it all the time. They talked about the things that he did for them. And because they were small children, those things mostly revolved around money and time. They said, we know he loves us because he plays video games with us. He helps us with our math homework. He bought me a lightsaber from Walmart. Their assurance of their father's love was not in his words, it was in his actions. And side note, I tried this same exercise with Chandler. I said, how do you know daddy loves you? And she just grinned from ear to ear and said, because. So, wasn't really useful for a sermon example, but I thought it was cute. So God demonstrated his love for us by sacrificing for us, which takes us right into our next point about God. And the rest of John 3.16, we see God gives. God so loved the world, how much? He gave his only son. So God gave his son, but for what purpose? For that purpose, look back to verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Alright, so here's your Old Testament lesson for the day. In Numbers 22, Moses is leading the Israelites towards the promised land. And they're starting to get impatient with God. They're starting to speak critically of God. They're starting to doubt the goodness and kindness of God. They're starting to complain. And their hearts are slowly starting to wander away from God. Right? And we can relate. This is a perfect picture of sin for us. Like we, We've doubted God. We've grown dissatisfied with His plan. We've allowed our hearts to be tempted by idols. We've served other gods. Everyone in here is, has looked for satisfaction, relationships, finances, earthly pleasures, whatever it may be. Like we've sinned in similar ways. But luckily, God has not punished us in similar ways. God heard their whining, God heard their complaining, and he responded by sending thousands of fiery serpents into their camp. He sent these vipers of death raining down from heaven on top of them. And they started biting the Israelites, and their venom was toxic. So the entire nation of Israel is wailing in pain and crying out that God would have mercy on them. And so God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it on top of a pole and stick it on top of a hill. And he tells Moses, every Israelite who sets his gaze on this elevated serpent will be saved. And so imagine the entire nation of Israel rolling on the ground, screaming in pain, crawling in desperation to just sneak a peek of this bronze serpent. Jesus, like the bronze serpent, would be lifted up for the same purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.21 proclaims, For our sake he made, him sin to, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was lifted up to pay the penalty for our sin. He was lifted up so we could look to Him for salvation. God gave His Son so we could receive His grace. But Jesus didn't only come as a sacrifice, He also came as a missionary. Let's continue in verse 17. 
we see the God who sins. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but order that the world might be saved through Him. So God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to save the world. He sent Jesus to share the good news. And obviously His sacrifice on the cross was essential for our salvation. Without His perfect atonement for our sins, we'd still be without hope. We would still be dead. So his story, his mission, begins and ends with the cross. His primary purpose on earth was overcoming sin on Calvary. But understand that when he rose again, only a select few saw his resurrected body. So for the rest of us, our faith would come from hearing, not seeing. So Jesus went to prepare the church to engage the nations with the gospel. On his way to the cross, part of his mission was laying the foundation for the church. He preached the good news, he prepared the disciples for leadership, and he gathered committed followers. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we're now grafted into the story of the Father, demonstrating and declaring his love through the mission of the Son. When we're brought into the kingdom of faith, we become advancers of the gospel. Once we're saved, we're sent. Jesus sent his Son, now Jesus is sending us. So God, because he loves us, gave us his son on a mission of reconciliation and sent his son on a mission of proclamation. So you'll see that the whole theme of this sermon is that we must believe, but all we've talked about so far is God. Because God plays a huge role in our salvation. God does the heavy lifting here. He showed radical, unexplainable love to us. He sacrificed greatly for us. He provided an incredible opportunity for us. But we still have a part to play. In verse 17, we see the final characteristic of God's place. We see God saves. Again, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through Him. God's ultimate purpose since the fall has been reconciliation through His Son. It was always the plan. It was always the way. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God, when they broke that first command in the first 15 minutes, he wasn't surprised. He didn't have to shift to plan B. He didn't have to get into the war room with the Son and the Spirit and figure out another game plan. No, in Genesis 15, he told them, you deserve judgment, but I'm going to provide a route for you to escape it. And then he called Abraham out of paganism and told him he'd be the father of a great nation. And that nation would bless the entire world. He called Moses out of, the, out of the wilderness and sent him to stand toe-to-toe with the most powerful ruler in the world and demand he let God's people go. He called prophet after prophet into Israel to tell them to turn back to God. But they continued to walk in disobedience. They continued to fall short of his standard. But God sent his son anyway. And when he came, they were so opposed to his message they ultimately murdered him on a cross. At any point, God would have been completely justified in cutting his losses. God would have been completely warranted to give up on us. But he didn't. He couldn't. Instead, he said, if you will receive my love, if you will trust in the work of my son, if you will turn your eyes to him, if you will follow him, I will wipe your slate clean. I will blot out your transgressions. I will eradicate your sin. I will save you. 
But I don't want you to miss this. Notice what verse 17 says. It says, Jesus came so we might be saved through Him. Salvation is conditional. Salvation requires a response. Salvation needs an RSVP. God clears the path for us, but we must take steps in repentance and faith. We must repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. You know, repentance was the sticking point for Nicodemus. He couldn't bring himself to repent. He couldn't humble himself before Jesus. He couldn't see himself as a wretched sinner. He couldn't see himself as broken in the presence of a holy God. We have to start with our own depravity. We need to understand the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. And once we've coped with our sin, once we've come to terms with our separation from God, we ask Jesus for forgiveness. We ask for the cross to cover our sins. And then we trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. We must believe. We see several references to believing in this conversation. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Our task in the salvation process is simple. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the scriptures. Believe in the gospel. Believe in God's redemptive plan. Believe in the sufficiency of the cross. Believe in the power of the resurrection. Believe in the second coming. Believe in the Son because He is our only hope for salvation. Let's pick back up in verse 18. It says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because He was not believed in the, same, in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does not come to the light, come whatever, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So our only hope is God's grace because our future reality is God's judgment. Our final point may seem contradictory. After all, a couple verses ago in verse 17, it says God did not send His Son to condemn the world. Later in John 12, 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Seems like a contradiction, but it's not. The contradiction is only apparent. Jesus says He didn't come to judge because judgment was not his primary purpose. He came to save first and foremost. But understand, when he preaches God's truth, when he displays God's righteousness, when he reveals God's love, some people refuse to believe. His ministry inevitably revealed and confirmed the spiritual blindness and unbelief of many. When he came as the light of the world, they refused him because they loved the darkness. They wanted to stay in the dark because their works were evil. They didn't want to be exposed. They wanted to cling to their sin. They wanted to hold on to their idols. They wanted to continue chasing everything the world had to offer. So they'll be condemned and cast out for their rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis once wrote, All of human history has been a long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. True peace, true joy, 
true contentment, true happiness apart from Jesus Christ does not exist. It's a fruitless venture. It's a fool's errand. Because our only hope for living an abundant life, our only hope for never tasting death is in God's grace alone. So loosen your grip on the world and hold on tight to the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for its power. thank You for its clarity. We thank You for its encouragement. We thank You for how it profoundly blesses us. Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for making us a people who have come into the light. Lord, we, we embrace the light. We, we love the light, even though it exposes our sin, even though it exposes the blind spots of our faith. Because, Lord, when it does, we know it means You're working in us. We want to measure ourselves by Your Word. Lord, I pray for those who hear this message who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. May they understand that nothing is in question then at this moment. Nothing is yet determined about their future. They've, they've been judged already, Lord. May they run to Christ, to the one lifted up on the cross to bear their sins. May they believe in Him as Lord and Savior. May they deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. Lord, may heaven come down today and give life. May sinners believe in your glory, in your grace. Lord, thank you for your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.